Welcome to In the News Show. I am your host, Judy Desigatis, and I'm here with my co-host, Father Bill Weary. Happy New Year, Father Bill. And to you as well, and to all the listeners, 2023, God bless us all. So let's get right into it. Um, of course, the news of late has been the passing of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, and it's been all over the airwaves, and um, learned, you know, learned a lot about him even in his, um, you know, in, in his passing. Well, I'm very much a Benedict guy, Benedict priest, and St. John Paul II. A priest, they were sort of joined at the hip, Mm-hmm. in many ways. But Benedict was, was fabulous. I thought he was great. When he became Pope, um, I had concerns from the pastoral dimension if he would be able to step up to the plate. And I think he did. And there might be those who are skeptical of that. But I thought he did a, a, a very good job of showing forth the love of the Lord, in addition to the, the doctrinal component, which for me is is paramount. And that's why I love those two Popes. He uh, He really met the challenge, I believe. It was a high bar set by John Paul II. John Paul II was an, was an everything pope. Mm-hmm. He, was, he was athletic. Um, he was um, intellectual. He was a theological. And he was very personable as well, a skier and a kayaker and all that. And, and Benedict XVI, you know, knew that he, he couldn't meet those kind of standards not that it's necessary to, but but he was very humble about it. Benedict XVI, he was called the you know the Rottweiler, God's right. Rottweiler, or the German Shepherd, um, and he did issue corrective actions, many of them uh, against uh, recalcitrant or wayward theologians when he was prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. But he always did that even gently, as well, and so he met a need. He was voted in. At the conclave, and, and he stepped up to the plate. Now, the resignation, of course, was huge. First time in 600 years that a pope had resigned. Gregory the 14th was the last one, I believe, in the I'm not sure 13th, 14th century, something like that. In any case, Benedict the 16th did step down, abdicate, if if you will, and Pope Francis was very appreciative of him for that. And and many commentators also saw that as a very modern move, despite being such a traditionalist, um, that um, Benedict would, would do that, step away. Very, an act of great humility also. I lamented it. I kind of wish that he would have hung in there. And it raised eyebrows, you know, two popes, both in white cassocks, right. uh, in, in pope dress, in, within a few hundred yards of one another, and both in, in Vatican City. He did not, uh, you know, regress to the, did not step back into the role of cardinal as Gregory Fourteenth did, the last abdicating pope, just became a cardinal. But uh, Benedict XVI, no, he was Pope Emeritus and uh, lived a life of of prayer. And um, so he's he's, uh, very commendable. The funeral was glorious. Funeral mass was very wonderful. Raised some eyebrows as well. Pope Francis, it was only a seven-minute homily and made very little reference to Benedict himself in the homily. However, I will say this about that that uh, the guidelines do say not to eulogize the deceased. And Pope Francis has always followed that, and he's always concentrated whenever he preaches. He always concentrates on the scripture readings, which is what we're supposed to do. And he has complimented. He did issue effusive compliments about Benedict in the past, and um, they they got along very well. I saw the movie The Two Popes. I thought it was very interesting, sort of historical fiction. And um, you know, it made... Um, 
Francis looked a little bit clunky, I thought, as played by Anthony Hopkins. And, but however, it wasn't it wasn't that bad. And um, I'm just uh, we pray for the repose of his soul. And I, I believe, in my opinion, he has a high place in heaven. I thought it was interesting, too, how they mentioned the relationship between Pope Francis and Pope Benedict and mm-hmm. the re- versus the relationship that Pope Benedict had with Pope St. John Paul II. So right. um, I think it was a little bit different. But as you said, they they did have some kind of respect for each other. So even though That's they right. might have disagreed on some things, because I definitely agree with you that Pope Benedict was the traditionalist as John Paul was and continuing a lot of the implementations that John Paul had. And then Pope Francis, you know, there's been some controversy here and there with some of the different decisions that he's made or the direction that he's going in or some of the cardinals that he's appointed. You know, that remains to be seen how how that will impact, the death of Benedict will impact now Pope Francis going forward, because I believe Pope Francis has also signed some kind of a letter that if he becomes uh, not available or not able to serve, that he would resign as well. Yeah, I think he's got his resignation letter in the drawer ready to pull it out <laughs> Yeah, if, if need be. Uh, George Geiswein. Uh, mm-hmm. Benedict XVI's personal secretary. I don't know if he's a, a bishop. He was the personal secretary for Benedict XVI, and he was prefect of the papal household mm-hmm. under Francis for a while. He began under Benedict, under Francis, and then uh, was kind of fired by Francis, although allowed to continue as Benedict's personal secretary, which he has done. He's coming out with a book now, and it's going to be kind of a, a tell-all book. I think it. I think it's going to be published tomorrow or on the uh, for sale uh, tomorrow. And I've read a little bit about it in ahead of time. And um, it'll be interesting to see what what goes on. He's going to address what he considers to be uh, Geiswein, that is considered to be slanders and detractions against Benedict. Um, he's going to, um, I think, speak about some of the interactions between Benedict and Pope Francis. Mm-hmm. And and apparently behind closed doors, there might have, there might have been some conflict mm-hmm. over, um, you know, some of, uh, of Francis's uh, doctrinal stands or, or reversals, however you want to call that. So we'll, that remains that remains to be seen. And and that uh, we'll brace ourselves for that book. Keeping in with the uh, the Pope theme, um, I have some information here that you shared with me, Father, um, that in September 2022, there was a statement from a couple of the bishops and uh, 20 other signatories that were protesting some of the positions of Pope Francis. Do you want to share with us some of the things that you know about what was um, happening there? Sure. It's 92 signatories, 92 signed on, um, expressing concern, uh, several bishops, many theologians and priests, and some uh, from all around the world, this is international, expressing concern uh, on his statements and positions uh, on Holy Communion. And uh, regarding particularly his, uh, the Pope's response or reaction to the um, communion to Nancy Pelosi. Some of the, uh, and the concern of these signatories is uh, sacrilegious communions that the Pope is at least tacitly, apparently uh, permitting, you know, in some cases, uh, sacrilegious communions. And the Pope made a statement um, about faith that all that is, um, he said, um, Everyone is invited to a recent, it was a statement last year about the reception of Holy Communion the Pope issued, according to which, quote, everyone is invited to the supper of the wedding of the Lamb to be admitted to the feast. This is the Pope, Francis speaking, uh, to be admitted to the feast. All that is required is the wedding garment of faith, 
which comes from the hearing of the word, unquote. And the signatories pointed out uh, that the perennial teaching of the church has been we cannot receive um, under the state of mortal sin. And the Council of Trent uh, was very clear on that in the 1500s. Um, and, and I'm quoting from the authors of the of the statement. And this was September 19th, uh, September 16th, 2022. And they write, uh, the Catholic Church has always taught that in order to receive the Holy Eucharist worthily and without sin, Catholics must receive sacramental absolution, if possible, for any mortal sins they have committed and obey all other laws of the church concerning reception of the Eucharist, as, for example, the laws concerning fasting prior to the reception of the Eucharist. Um, so, and uh, the, the Council of Trent has uh, put the kibosh on uh, just, you know, faith being the only, the only thing necessary, uh, that, that um, preparation must be employed to receive the Eucharist worthily. So, um, that's a, that was the concern that was conveyed here, and um, the um, also uh, Canon nine one Canon nine one five is uh, is very clear um, also about um, those who are in the state of serious sin. Canon nine one five are not manif in manifest serious sin are not to receive holy communion. So I. And also, they, they do quote 1 Corinthians chapter 11, St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, where Paul says, let a man prove himself before he receives the bread and, and the wine. Paul says that one can drink judgment unto himself by receiving unworthily. So I just thought that was very, very telling that these people, I, I'm, glad, I'm glad for the statement, very much, very much so, that they uh, they did stand up and uh, stepped up to the plate, so to speak, and made it clear that it's just not merely faith, but it also has to be in the state of sanctifying grace. And he's promoted the idea early on in, in 2014, he promoted the idea of giving, uh, the Pope did, of giving Holy Communion to unrepentant married divorcees. Then he opened up the idea of Protestants following their own conscience and when deciding to receive Holy Communion. And um, this is from, actually, this is from an um, article written by Micah Hickson, prominent Catholic writer. Um, and she says, in addition, the Pope has been encouraging pro-abortion Catholics to receive Holy Communion and even called pro-LGBTQ advocate Father James Martin as a Vatican counselor. In all of these cases, the Pope allows Catholics to receive Holy Communion who are objectively violating the Church's laws and teachings thus promoting moral relativism. So uh, that's the concern. Whether or not the Pope saw the doctor, a, a document, I certainly hope that he did. This is chapter 7 uh, from the Council of Trent, the decree concerning the Most Holy Eucharist. That was the council called in the 16th century in order to answer the Protestant Reformation. And, in, and I'll quote from that uh, council document, quote, if it, is, if it is not becoming for anyone to approach any of the sacred functions except solemnly, certainly, the more the holiness and the divinity of this heavenly sacrament is understood by a Christian, the more diligently ought he to take heed, lest he approach to receive it without great reverence and holiness. Especially when we read in the apostle those words full of terror, quote, he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh judgment to himself, not discerning the body of the Lord, unquote. Therefore, the precept, let a man prove himself, must be recalled to mind by him who wishes to communicate. Now, 
Ecclesiastical usage declares that this examination is necessary, that no one conscious of mortal sin, however contrite he may seem to himself, should approach the Holy Eucharist without a previous sacramental confession. This, the Holy Synod has decreed, is always to be observed by all Christians, even by those priests, on whom by their office it may be incumbent to celebrate, provided the recourses of a confessor be not lacking to them. So, uh, Council of Trent dealt with that right away. So it's not just the wedding garment of faith. Canon 915, that's our, from our current canon law, says those who have been excommunicated or interdicted after the imposition or de declaration of the penalty and others obstinately persevering in manifest grave sin are not to be admitted to Holy Communion. Father, we a have canon, to go to break right yeah. now. Please stay with us. You're listening to 720 WHYF Holy Family Radio. to In the News Show. I am your host, Judy Desigatis. Before we went to the break, Father was giving us some very detailed information about uh, communion, sacrilegious communion, and what some of the canon law is about that. And I just want to circle back and make sure we finish that and close that. Um, so if you want to share back with us, Father, what you were discussing. Sure. I was about ready to share canon, uh, some, of the, some of the canons um, on, on this. And Canon 9.16 says, A person who is conscious of grave sin is not to celebrate Mass or to receive the body of the Lord without previous sacramental confession unless there is a grave reason and there is no opportunity to confess. In this case, the person is to remember the obligation to make an act of perfect contrition, which includes the resolution of confessing as soon as possible. And it's to be noted, and this is all part and parcel of the concern of the, the Pope's um, well, it came out of a, a letter or an encyclical Desiderio Desideravi, in which he talked about just the garment of faith as being the only thing necess necessary in order to receive communion. However, uh, those canons uh, obviate that, um, make it obvious that uh, the person has to be in a state of sanctifying grace, not conscious of serious sin. And um, I guess I can, we can just stop that there. Oh, some of the names of the uh, 92 sign signatures um, at the top of the list is um, Bishop Joseph Strickland, Bishop mm -hmm. of Tyler, Texas, um, Rene Henry Gracida, uh, Bishop Emeritus of Corpus Christi, is a Dutch bishop, most also Bishop Athanasius Schneider, Auxiliary Bishop of Astana, Kazakhstan, Father James Altman, um, and um, I'll just stop there, um, and yeah. a number of other, other names as well. So um, it's very significant and very prominent uh, conf confrontation, I guess I could say, calling calling the Pope to ac accountability on this. So um, we'll see what happens and what, what else comes out of this. Yes, that, and thank you, Father, for that very detailed pieces of information, because I think a lot of our faithful may not be up on all that kind of thing as far as, you know, what are the reasons why we can't just give communion to someone in mortal sin? So, um, And it's so good to know that we always have that confession available Exactly. Um, to cleanse us of our sin and to be in the state of grace when we are receiving Holy Communion. So let's switch gears for a little bit. I just want to mention that uh, coming up on January 20th is the National March for Life, which is uh, still being held in D.C., but this is going to be the first March for Life in a post-Roe world. Um, and so th that will be down in D.C. as usual. 
And uh, many parishes are conducting local marches as well. And I want to give a shout out for Holy Spirit, which is my parish, Holy Spirit in Palmyra, on Friday, January 20th, which is the day at the same day of the march in D.C., there will be a rally that starts at noon, and there'll be a one-mile march uh, at 1.30 p.m. that's going to go down to the Palmyra Square. Uh, we'll be praying the rosary and also doing some other prayers when we get to the square, and then we'll walk back. And, of course, I'll have some refreshments after the march as well. Um, but I'll, I'll just mention that... Um, It'd be a short one-mile march to the square and a good testament to the, for the unborn and standing up for the unborn, because that's still an important cause. And um, if you have additional questions, I'm just uh, mention one of our Knights of, wonderful Knights of Columbus Art Bond. The phone number is 717-383-8583 is his number. If you're in the Palmyra, Hershey area, Anvil, um, uh area and you're interested in joining us for this March for Life, uh, we'd be glad to have you. We've uh, The numbers have been increasing every year. And even in the coldest weather, we bundle ourselves up, we carry our banners, and we walk to the square. So uh, anything in your neighborhood, Father, for the march? Unfortunately, no. We have done local a march in the past in January, gathering at the steps of my church and then going to uh, about a half mile, all walking. We've had many you know, 30, 40 people 50 uh, walking to a nearby Protestant church, Bethel Ami Church, for uh, speeches, music, and a, re and a reception. But not this year. Uh, the ball got dropped. Uh, so we're not doing anything. Um, and then as far as the March for Life in Washington, D.C., I've gone in a number of times not going this year uh, either. But this will be a victory lap for them uh, in Washington. Amen. I mean, there, there will be um, a lot of joy over uh, the Supreme Court decision. At the same time, I'm sure the message is gonna go out loud and clear. Our work has just begun. That is right. And because it's state by state now, so it's gonna be, require a lot of lobbying and a lot of education and um, a lot of getting the educate the message out regarding the pro-life, pro our pro-life stance and protection of the child in the womb. And um, we're going to have to really work hard and, and pray hard in keeping the, the pro-life position front and center in the minds of the public. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, you know, going to shifting this a little bit also, um, uh, we have a quote here. We have some information that one of the U.S. senators, Josh Hawley, he's a junior senator from Missouri, um, there was a statement uh, probably later last year, 2022, where he was talking about um, engaging young men like himself, I believe uh, Senator Hawley's in his 40s, in a speech um, to focus on getting off of pornography, uh, focus on getting married and have children, forming stable families. Um, do you have something to share with us about that, Father? I was just uh, amazed at his statement. Uh, it was actually on Tucker Carlson mm -hmm. uh, on December 20th, and Josh Hawley, talked about pornography and, and uh, that young men have to step up to the plate, quit watching porn, get married and start a family. And just a couple quotes from what he said. He said, somebody's got to be honest and tell the truth to these young men. And the mm -hmm. truth is that the porn industry is selling them a total lie. Mm -hmm. And the truth is America society needs them. We need them to get, go get married and have families and be responsible husbands and fathers. This society is impoverished because too many young men are too despairing. Mm -hmm. And 
He goes on to say, aspire to be something more than a consumer. And for young men, aspire to be something more than a consumer of pornography. Aspire to actually create something of your life, like create a family, for instance. That is the greatest act of of rebellion, if you like, against the liberal culture, unquote. Well, pornography is a a pandemic. I mean, it's, uh, it's just everywhere and people are getting sucked into it. It's increasing among females. It's also very, I might mention, very, very big in the male homosexual community. I'm, um, you know, chaplain for the courage, courage movement. And mm-hmm. I can testify to that, uh, that, um, that the men struggle with that. Um, but especially heterosexually, it's just, um, it's addicting. And it's like heroin or cocaine almost. It's very, very difficult to ex- extract oneself from it. And um, without, you know, mentioning names or breaking the seal or anything like that, I, I can testify that in, you know, in the confessional, it's, it's, it's common. Mm-hmm. And so Josh Hawley's statement, I mean, my goodness gracious, God bless him for doing that. I don't know what kind of blowback he got for it, but it is so true that getting married and raising a family is, is key. It's a, it's a building block of civilization. So we commend him for, for that and hope that people will heed uh, what he says and what courage for a United States senator to speak uh, on, on that matter. Yes, yes. And just to add to that, you know, years ago, pornography was available in print and movies and things like that. But it's so easy to get now with the computers, the phones. Um, Absolutely. So anytime, anywhere. It's available and um, and it's easy. And so what what's happening also is just to divert a little bit is that that's an opening for the devil to come in through these through these portals of uh, starting out as pornography might end up to something else. So uh, ruins marriages, it ruins relationships. And, you know, as the senator probably alluded to, it's it's preventing people from wanting marriage and wanting to have children um, because it's the 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 opposite the 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 terrible things that are that are being presented in pornography it's too easy you know it's too objectifying um because yeah. the men would have to step up you know and uh, and the women have to support our our men too and not and not uh bring them down so we right. we have to help with that as well um it's but a very... hard case to make but yes. chastity chastity is the best preparation for matrimony and people don't get that, um, but it is. That's the mo- That's the stabilizing influence. Yeah. Theologian, moral theologian Janet Smith says, "I'll give one thousand. Did I ever say this before? I'll give one thousand dollars to anybody, mm-hmm. any any couple that does these five things. If I mentioned that, you did, but it's worth mentioning again, especially with I'll give New, 5, New 000, Year's. I'll give one thousand dollars to any couple who does these five things. Hope I can remember them all, and and gets divorced." anywhere. She said, nobody's ever taken me up on it. Okay. Uh, number one, go to church every every weekend. Number two, pray out loud with your spouse every day. Um, number three, don't have sex before you're married. And if you are having sex, stop and then put the wedding date at least six months out. In other words, six months of chastity. Uh, four, um, NFP, practice natural family planning, not artificial contraception, and five, tithe, 10% of gross income back 
to God. Mm-hmm. And you could you could you could go an hour on each one of those things, which we're not going right. to do. But uh, <laughs> just just put that out there for your consideration, young well, people. We have about two minutes to go, but with that list, because I think it's really good, and I know a lot of people, especially with New Year's, are trying to focus on resolutions, and, and even though they get broken sometimes, if you had to pick uh, like one of those, what would you say is, is a good one to, to focus on to try for the new year? Well, I would say if you're not getting the mass every weekend, start getting the mass yeah. every week, Saturday yeah. night or Sunday. Right. And the second thing would be prayer. Um, mm-hmm. praying, praying to God for strength, because chastity is really, um, you really need God's help mm-hmm. with any, any of the virtues, obviously, right. Right. And, in, and to grow in sanctity and prayer is the key that, um, and if you can do it, I mean, this is a stretch, but if you could do a daily holy hour before the blessed sacrament, that would be optimal. Wow. And a daily rosary as well. The Virgin Mary is of course, a pa- patroness of chastity. She, helps to impart those graces to those who ask for it. And we have to ask. Right. That, that's the important thing. We, we need to ask. Um, so if you could, uh, we're about finished for today. If you could give us a prayer to send us on our way for the new year, that would be wonderful, Father. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, as we launch into 2023, may we beseech your graces in all things, through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, who began this year with the Feast of Mary, Mother of God. Through her intercession, may we be strong in your love, reaching out to neighbor and in charity. Keep us always in your grace through Christ our Lord. And may Almighty God bless you all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you.